0: Luke chapter 22. There is a seriousness and gravity to what we're going to look at this morning. And so I want to draw your attention, before we even start, to Moses' encounter with the living God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, 3 through 6. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. You're seeing a bush that's not burning. This is something that is is holy, something that's amazing. Something that is too powerful of a moment. Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Now, why do I bring up the burning bush this morning? What does the burning bush and standing on holy ground have to do with Luke chapter 22? This passage of scripture before us is holy ground, it's weighty, it's serious it's staggering it's sober minding it leads us to stop and take a breath to where we can fully understand the gravity of what jesus endured when he was praying in the garden of gethsemane just hours before his crucifixion it is holy ground and we need to take off our shoes this morning metaphorically as we enter into this passage of Scripture. Now let's remember the context because last week Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And that he would be brought back to repentance and restore his brothers. But it was a warning to his disciples. If you remember, Judas had already been entered by, or Satan had already entered Judas and he would already left to betray Jesus so let's read together Luke 22 are all the house lights all the way up Roger maybe they are okay so let's read together Luke chapter 22 verses 35 through 46 this is right picking up where we left off last week and he said to them when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals did you lack anything and they said nothing He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. And he came out and was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's really two main truths from this passage of Scripture this morning that I want us to explore. And here's the first. Jesus is our perfect example of how to pray. Our perfect example of how to pray. Now, Jesus prayed often, but this is just hours before the cross, and we see an intensity here in Jesus like nothing else we've ever seen. This is a spiritual battle going on here. This is spiritual warfare at its height. Judas had already left to betray Jesus. Peter's about ready to deny Jesus three times. The Roman soldiers are just minutes and hours away from taking Jesus and arresting him and flogging him, and then eventually he's going to be crucified on a bloody cross of wood. And Jesus could have been thinking about himself during these hours, but his heart's always others-centered, and he's concerned about his disciples So he gives them a warning about preparing to engage in this spiritual warfare. So how is Jesus our example of prayer? We see three things here about prayer. And they're all related together, but they're a little bit different. So what are these three things that we learn about prayer, these instructions on prayer? Well, first, we must be prepared to engage in spiritual warfare, we need to be prepared to engage in spiritual warfare. Now, in verses 35 through 38, Jesus is reminding his disciples of back in Luke chapter 10, when he sent them out two by two. And he sent them out to the villages to proclaim the gospel, and Jesus said, You know, did, 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 were your needs not met when I sent you out two by two? Yes, your needs were met. But now Jesus says something very strange. That maybe you've never actually come across in the Bible before and you've read the Gospels and this is something you're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Because notice what he says there in verse 36. But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Go buy a sword. You're going to need it. Now what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about a literal sword here? Is the kingdom of God advanced through warfare? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. We know just a few minutes later that Jesus is going to rebuke Peter for slicing off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. So Jesus and the rest of the Bible does not condone violence by sword. This is metaphorical language. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, pick up that spiritual sword Put on the full armor of God and be ready to engage in spiritual warfare because it's coming in hot. From here on out, disciples, you are going to be engaged in a spiritual battle with the forces of evil. And you need courage to stand up and to fight. And by the way, would two swords be do any good against Roman soldiers? The disciples are thinking literally, hey, we got two swords. And Jesus is like, that's enough. You're not getting it. What is the spiritual warfare related to swords? Well, we we find out from Paul, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places disciples this is not a battle with other people with literal swords this is a spiritual battle with the forces of evil get a sword what is the sword well later on in that passage Ephesians 6 17 take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God pick up the word of God as your sword your offensive weapon in this warfare This warfare that you're battling for truth. You're battling for goodness. You're battling against Satan. You're battling in the spiritual warfare, disciples. Go buy a sword. This was read to open up our service this morning, but let me just remind you of it. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not swords, literally. What are the weapons of our warfare? We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our weapons are spiritual, it's the word of God, it's prayer. So Jesus says to these disciples, metaphorically, figuratively, go get a sword. Get ready to pick up a sword because it's going to be warfare. And the primary way we fight is on our knees that's how you fight the battle on your knees in prayer that's how Jesus fought the battle here on his knees in prayer now I'm going to date myself here for just a moment and some of you may remember this group Um, I'm a big Petra fan so like the rock group Petra so um, back in the 80s when I was in high school they had a song called Stand in the Gap. I'm going to read you the lyrics just because you're like, man, I don't, I've never heard of Petra. Maybe you should go on iTunes and listen to this great album from 1989, the On Fire album. So it says this, stand in the gap, coming boldly to his throne of grace. Stand in the gap, he will hear you when you seek his face. Put your weapon to its use and believe it will produce. Stand in the gap until all hell, until all hell breaks loose. Now there's a play on words there. When you engage in spiritual battle, all hell's going to break loose. They're going to come against you. But when you pray in people's lives, all hell's going to break loose of those chains and those bondages and those things that are holding people in sin. So Jesus tells his disciples, metaphorically, go buy a sword. Don't literally go buy a sword. It's not about advancing the kingdom through power. It's through prayer. Be ready for spiritual warfare that's the first thing Jesus teaches us about prayer. It's a spiritual battle. Go get the sword of the Spirit. Get the spiritual armor. Second thing, he says, is we must pray for strength to not fall into temptation. Twice. What does Jesus say to them? Verse 40. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now what would be the temptation for these disciples? To deny Jesus. To scatter. To abandon the faith. To fail miserably. He says, watch and pray. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, pray for me. He says, watch and pray for yourselves. That you don't fall into temptation. Now the other gospels Say this, watch and pray because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You may have every intentions of not falling into temptation, but you and I are weak. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do again it's back to that warfare imagery there's a battle going on you as a believer want to follow Christ that's the holy spirit in you but at the same time you're battling your flesh where you want to follow that temptation so there's this constant internal battle to follow the lord and not fall into temptation and how do you wage that warfare you pray you watch you guard your heart it's warfare first timothy 1:18 this charge i entrust to you timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may wage the good warfare. I love that Paul is writing to Timothy as a pastor and says, hey Timothy, guess what you're signing up for as a pastor? Warfare. What are you signing up for as a Christian? Warfare. Wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In this intense spiritual battle for your soul, get the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and ask the Lord to give you strength to not fall into temptation because it's a warfare. Jesus is telling his disciples, from here on out, guys, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be warfare. There's going to be battle battle with the the devil. There's going to be battle against your own flesh. There's going to be a battle with the world. It is going to get intense. And there's going to be great temptation for you to fall into temptation and to sin. And here's the third thing Jesus teaches us about prayer. We must submit our wills to God's will. What does Jesus pray in verse 42? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We're going to talk here in just a few moments about what the cup is and why Jesus asked for it to be removed. But notice what Jesus ultimately prayed. Your will be done. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a commentary back on, I think, this moment where Jesus is praying intensely in the garden. Hebrews 5.7, we read it earlier, but let's just read it again. We read it during our time of confession this morning. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his Reverence. Now, I don't have time to go into this, and so if you get the sermon manuscript after the sermon, there's an appendix on the last page because it's a little bit too weighty to teach in a, in a sermon like this. But let me just say this. Yes, it was a struggle for Jesus, but he never once wavered in his mission to obey the Father and go to the cross. His prayer was not my will, not my agenda, not my plans, but, Father, yours be done. And if Jesus prayed like that as our example, we should pray like that as well. And Jesus taught us to pray that way. How does he tell us to pray? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Okay, Jesus, how should we pray? Our Father in heaven Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, not mine. J.C. Ryle has said this about Christians who follow Jesus' example here. He says, Submission of will like Jesus is one of the brightest graces which can adorn the Christian character. It is one which a child of God ought to, aim at, ought to aim at in everything if he desires to be like Christ. If you want to be like Christ, pray like Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. These are distressing moments. These are intense moments that Jesus spends in prayer. And notice in verse 44, after Jesus prays this, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We're going to explore that here in just a moment. But notice what it says there. He prayed more earnestly. He intensified his praying. I've often said this, and it's from Charles Spurgeon, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. You sometimes got to push through and agonize and pray. And here's why it's warfare. Why is it great warfare to pray, not my will be done, but your will be done? That's warfare because what happens? We want our will to be done, don't we? It's a battle of wills. Who's going to come out on top? Is my will going to come out on top or is God's will going to come out on top? And there's a battle. And when we pray, we're submitting to the will of the Lord. You know, the Bible is full of great examples of people who desperately prayed and asked for the Lord's will. And they, and they, they were at their end, end of the rope. I love the way the Bible records the prayers of people who were desperate. You remember Hannah? Hannah did not have a child. She was childless, and she was crying out to the Lord, and, she was, and, and she, was, she was crying so passionately that Eli the priest came by and thought she was drunk, because she was so intensely praying. You see this in 1 Samuel 1, 13-15. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, "'How long will you go on being drunk?' Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Here's a woman who's pouring her soul out before the Lord, asking God to come through. She's praying fervently. What about King Hezekiah? When he receives a letter about an impending invasion from the Assyrian armor army. He gets this letter and he spreads it out. And he begins to pray before the Lord. You see this in 2 Kings chapter 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel a throned above the cherubim, you are the God. The you alone Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know. Know that you, O oh Lord, are God alone. Do you hear the desperation of King Hezekiah? Lord, we're desperate. Would you please listen? Would you hear? What about King Jehoshaphat? The Moabites and the Ammonites had summoned these huge armies and they're about to come and invade Israel. And I love the prayer of Jehoshaphat. I mean, he proclaims a feast, I mean a fast, he proclaims a time of prayer, but then you've got this great statement of Jehoshaphat, and maybe this is the best thing you can pray. 2 Chronicles 20, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them, for we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us, and I love this, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a great prayer. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. We have no clue what to do, but our eyes are on you. We are clueless. We are fearful. We don't know what to do. Hannah was in distress. She prayed fervently. Hezekiah was in distress. He prayed fervently. Jehoshaphat was in distress. He prayed fervently. And maybe you're in distress this morning. What do you do? You pray fervently. You ask God to act quickly. James 5.13 is any among you suffering? Let him pray. But what were the disciples doing? They fell asleep. Now don't raise your hands, but how many of you here have ever fallen asleep praying? Don't ever fall asleep while you're lying in bed, ready to go, go to bed. <laughs> you stand up unless you want to fall asleep. The so disciples are falling asleep. They're asleep at the wheel. They're passive. they're not urgent. See, here's the bottom line about this entire section here. Prayer is spiritual battle to align your will with God's will. It's spiritual battle. Because we don't like submitting our will to God's will. We're selfish, and we're sinful, and we're fearful, and we think we know best, and so we're going to want to be in control. Jesus, don't take the wheel. I want it. Thank you very much. We want to be in control. And so there's a battle done on our knees, a spiritual battle of prayer. And so the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is Jesus is our example of how to pray. But there's something more important in this passage of Scripture, and it's the second big truth. Jesus is our perfect Savior. Who died in our place now he's a great example of how to pray Jesus is the greatest example of how to live the greatest example of how to preach how to pray how to teach how to minister how to love how to lead he's the greatest example but let me just ask you a question anybody going to live up to his example no we need more than an example we need a savior and Jesus is our perfect savior Mark's gospel tells it this way about this event here in the garden. Mark 14, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. This is a moment of dark sorrow. Jesus is in anguish over the spiritual realities, what he would soon face on the cross. And then in verse 37, he quotes Isaiah 53:12. Verse 37, I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me." Well what scripture is that? Isaiah 53:12. "He was numbered with the transgressors. for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Written some 700 years before Jesus would come on the scene. So let's just go back and read Isaiah 53:12. Jesus quotes the last part of it, but he doesn't quote the entire scripture. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus voluntarily poured out his soul for many. Never ever once think that Jesus was ever a victim any step of the way. He was always sovereignly in charge of everything. John ten eighteen. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. He's talking about his life there. The way the original language speaks in the, in the, in the Hebrew text there in Isaiah 5312 12 is that Jesus voluntarily chose to be numbered among the transgressors. It was his choice to do so. He chose to be in the, the place of transgressors. And that word transgressor shows up in that Isaiah 53-12 passage, and it means a rebel, one who stands against God. And so Jesus voluntarily said, I'm going to substitute myself voluntarily in the place of rebels. I'm going to be numbered among the transgressors. I'm going to suffer in their place. And then Jesus also says, not only is he going to be numbered among the transgressors, but notice what he says there in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now what's the cup? Why does Jesus talk about a cup? Why does he want the cup removed? What is this cup? If you go back and you read your Old Testament, this cup is the cup of God's wrath poured out to the very last drop. The cup of judgment. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, the cup of wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, He said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jeremiah 49, 12, Thus says the Lord, If those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? you shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. Drinking the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was not in anguish over facing Roman nails or physical crucifixion as excruciating as it would be. He knew He would have to endure the full wrath. Of God against our sin. He would be numbered among the transgressors. He would drink the cup of God's wrath. Our sins would be credited to him so that God would punish him as if he had sinned, even though he never did sin. Jesus had perfect intimate fellowship with the father and in those moments of him taking the wrath of God he would experience sin for the very first time not his own but ours and since those sins of ours were were placed upon Jesus, God had to treat Jesus the way we should have been treated, and that is full wrath, punishment, condemnation poured out on Jesus in our place. That's the cup. That's the spiritual torment. That's bearing our sins. Isaiah fifty three six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Instead of that iniquity and that sin being unleashed in all of its furor and and anger upon us, God lays it upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never once knew sin. But in those moments, he was treated as a sinner because of our sin and was punished in our place. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The great Bible scholar B.B. Warfield wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And I want you to listen to what B.B. Warfield says here. It's pretty profound. He says, We may well believe that our Lord, though He died on the cross, yet He did not die of the cross, but of a broken heart. That is to say, of the strain of his spiritual suffering. Warfeld says the cross isn't what killed Jesus. It was a broken heart because of all the sin that was laid upon him in that moment. And we know that Jesus in his human nature leading up to that moment Is praying in extreme agony that that sweat like drops of blood come pouring off of his forehead. The intensity of the moment being pressed down by the full weight of knowing what awaits him at the cross. But yet, there's great symbolism in what's going on here. One detail I forgot to leave out that's very important. Where is this taking place? Where is this taking place? Look at verse 39. When he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, otherwise known as the Garden of Gethsemane. you want to know what the word Gethsemane means? The word Gethsemane means olive press. So how did they press olives back in that day? What was going on? As Jesus is praying, what's going on around him? There's olive presses all over the place. You see, an olive press was a stone, big, huge stone basin that was used to crush olives to a pulp. And so what would happen was donkeys would push these wooden beams around and it would send this kind of boulder-type thing this millstone, it would crush the grapes. But that wasn't enough to crush the grapes. I mean, the the olives. Not the grapes, but the olives. After this process, heavy stone slabs were laid down upon the crushed olives. And the weight of that slab would press, 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 and then out would come the olive oil. From the crushed olives down this chute, and they would be collected into jars. An olive press pressing down, crushing olives so that the oil is squeezed out. Gethsemane. That's a vivid picture of Jesus' suffering. The full weight of our sins press down upon him in that garden like a heavy slab crushing him emotionally and spiritually. And that blood like drops of sweat and blood poured off of his forehead because of the intensity of that moment in Gethsemane. He knew He would be numbered with the transgressors. He knew he would drink the cup of God's wrath. And the prospect of that took its spiritual toll on him, emotional and physical and spiritual. And let me remind you, this is all before he even dies on the cross. This is what he knows awaits him. So what should our response be to this Jesus who is our greatest Savior, perfect Savior, who died in our place? Well, the first thing it should do is should should show you how sinful sin truly is. It was your sin and my sin that put Jesus there. Do you hate sin? Have you learned to hate your sin? Have you learned to see what sin truly is? When you think about the agony of the cross, you should be stricken to the heart that you and I deserved to drink the cup of God's wrath, not Jesus. It was our sin that put him there. Not his, because he never once sinned. We are guilty. We're the transgressors. So it should lead us to see how sinful sin truly is. But it also should lead us to be thankful. Oh, so thankful and joyful because Christ loved us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.8, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But God shows His love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I love it. Jesus did not wait for us to get our act together before he died in our place. Jesus did not say to us, hey, I'll go to the cross and die for you if you can kind of be a little bit more spiritual, if you can get your act together, if you can try to be a good person, if you could go to church every Sunday, if you could somehow help a, an old lady across the road, if somehow you could do something and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then I'll, maybe I'll think about going to die on the cross for you. But you better get your act together before I even dare go do that. No, Jesus went to the cross while we were still sinners. Because we were still sinners. And it should bring you joy. It should bring you great humility and thankfulness. So this whole gravity of this moment should help you see your sin. It should help you see God's love for you. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that's the most important thing this this whole event should do. It should lead you to say, I am a sinner, and Jesus went to the cross to die for my sins. I need to trust Him for my salvation. I need to cry out to Him to forgive me of my sins. So that's my question for you this morning. Have you trusted in Jesus alone to be your Lord and Savior. Have you come to that point in your life where it is true for you? You've trusted. You've owned up to your sin. You've called out to Jesus for forgiveness. So as we think about this passage of Scripture, would you look upon Jesus The agonizing Christ. The weight of sin pressing down upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweating drops of blood. Knowing in just a few moments he's going to be arrested and he's going to drink the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. Would that lead you and me today to fix our eyes on this great Jesus? Because here's the point when you look at the cross, And you see Jesus dying there. You see your sin that put him there. And you also see his love for you dying there. So let's feel the weight of this. Let's feel the gravity of this. But let's also be thankful that Jesus did it for us. Because he loved us so much. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. That you went to the cross and that you drank the cup of God's wrath and you submitted to his will. And you were numbered among the transgressors and died in our place. If you had not done that, we would all be lost, hell-bound, condemned for eternity without any hope. So, Jesus, we come to this passage of Scripture with a, with a lot of gravity it is holy ground. We kind of need to take off our sandals because we're on holy ground. We, we don't quite understand the emotional and physical and spiritual complexity of what it meant for you to pray those moments where you, you had sweat like drops of blood coming off your forehead. We, we may not fully understand all the, all the things that are in this passage of Scripture, but one thing we do know, Jesus, is that you love us. And you went to the cross for us And you chose to do this. Not because we deserved it, but because of your great mercy. So help us to walk out of this place with a greater hope, a greater assurance, a greater sense of forgiveness of our sins that we can have in you, Jesus. And Lord, if there's anybody here again that's never trusted you for salvation, they've never trusted owned up to their sin and said, Jesus, I need to be saved. I need you to save me. I need to, I need to have you as, as the Lord of my life. Would today be that day where they place all their trust in you to forgive them of their sins and to give them eternal life. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. May we leave this place kind of just with these thoughts on our minds of just the gravity of what you endured for us. Sometimes we do need to feel the weight of it. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Amen. I will be here after the service if you need someone.